The reading is from Judges chapter 4, and it can be found on page 245 in the Church Bibles. Judges chapter 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who ruled in Hazar. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Harasheth Haguim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinuim, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the river Kishon, and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went with him. Now Ebor the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Sanathim, near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinuin, had gone up to Mount Tabor, <coughs> Sisera summoned from Harish Haganim to the river Kedish all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. <coughs> has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Haguim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the temp of Jael, the wife of Hebel the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabal Jabin, king of Azor, and the family of Hebi, the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. 
So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes and asks you, is anyone there, say no. But Jael, Ebor's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground and he died. Just then, Barak came in came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with a tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites, and the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan until they destroyed him. This is the word of the Lord. Great, please keep the passage open in front of you, as usual. Uh, so we're Judges chapter 4. The sermon sort of covers chapters 4 and chapter, f- and chapter 5 as well. Um, but thank you, Andrea, for reading chapter 4. That was great. Uh, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to your word, you would teach us that you would open our eyes to your greatness and your glory and that through this sermon and by the end of it we would all be praising you all the more. Amen. So who's in control? The Bible teaches us, doesn't it, that the Lord God is sovereign over his creation. Nothing happens outside of his purposes. Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 says, Not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God. Everything happens according to his purposes. But we might think, in what way is God in control of all things? Is he like a chess grandmaster, thinking many steps ahead, drawing his opponent in to make mistakes? Or is he like a driving instructor, We've got a few of them in our congregation. With dual controls, us driving, them ready to take control if needed. Is that how God is? Our tendency is to think, well, as we look at our lives, we question whether God is in control, don't we? At times, we look at the world and our lives and we wonder, is God in control? And so it is good for us to have a passage like Judges chapters 4 and 5. Because in these chapters, the curtain is drawn back and we see here God's incredible power and control in this situation. What's going on here? Well, we are in the book of Judges. We've seen that there is a cycle in the book of Judges that goes round and round and round. And we see it again in this chapter. It starts again in verse 1. The Israelites doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, with Ehud, the, uh, the previous judge, dead. 
And so the Lord sells them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigns in that place uh, and who has an army commander in another place. And God allows those Canaanites to take over the land and to oppress his people. And the people, after 20 years of oppression, cry out to God, verse 3. But whereas in the previous incidents it's been obvious who the hero is, last time it was obvious, it was Ehud. He's the one God raised up. In this passage, it's not so obvious. Who's the hero? Who's the deliverer? Is it Barak? Is it Deborah? Is it that woman Jael with her vicious tent peg? Who's the hero in this story? Well, all of those people play their part. But actually, we need to see, above all, the hero, the one in control, and therefore the one who receives the glory, is God. And that is made very clear throughout. Above all else, if we don't see that God is the one who gets the glory, we've missed the point of the passage. After all... Just have a look, just as you go through. Verse 14 is the centre of the passage. It's at the heart of the passage. And verse 14, Deborah says to Barak at that point, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? She knows it is God who is in control, the Lord God. At the end of uh, the battle, the characters sort of fade away. And you see in verse 23, it says, On that day, on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. Who did it? God did it. And when you get into chapter 5, it is a song of praise to God for the victory in chapter 4. It's unusual. There is another time in the Old Testament where it happens, where you get the description of what happened and then a song about it. But here, that is what we have. Chapter 4 is a description, then chapter 5 is a song in praise of God. And you see verse 3, this is what Deborah and Barak sang. Verse 3, hear this, you kings, listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. See, there's no doubt in Deborah and Barak's mind that the one in control, the one who should get all the glory, all the praise, is God. And I'm hoping by the end of this sermon, you will be moved, and I will be moved, all the more to praise God for his incredible power and control. So let's see the instruments that the Lord uses. You see, God doesn't have to use instruments. He could do whatever he wants, but he chooses in his sovereignty, in his control, to use instruments in the battle. Let's see what he uses, and it is incredible. The first couple of things, though, maybe don't strike you as incredible. They probably won't, but they are still wonderful. First, because the first couple involve God's people. And the first one is the reluctant. The Lord's instruments, the reluctant. Now, for this we see Barak, don't we? 
uh, if you go back to the beginning of the passage. Uh, like I say, the cycle of the judges starts again. God's people have been committed evil. They've rejected God. God brings in the Canaanites to, uh, uh, to take over the land. And at that point, we do expect a judge to be raised up. If you've been reading through the book of Judges, that's what you expect. God provides a deliverer. And so we get, well, Deborah comes along, this prophetess. And she calls Barak. She summons Barak and says to Barak that he is the one to go. Verse 6, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Barak, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, uh, with his chariots and his troops to the river Kishon and give him into your hands. In other words, God has said through Deborah to Barak, you are the one who is to go into battle and here's the battle plan. You go to, mount, uh, to the mountain, I'll bring the armies and I will hand them over to you. Now, Barak is reluctant. Verse 8, he says, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now, I don't think it's surprising that Barak is reluctant. I mean, the opposition is quite terrifying. We've seen earlier on that, um, uh, that uh, Jabin has chariots. And they're not just any old chariots, they're top of the range. These are the newest ones. These are the ones with the iron built into them. And clearly this is something that is absolutely terrifying, and he's got 900 of them. So it is quite a formidable opponent that, uh, that is against the Israelites, that's against Barak. And furthermore, if you read into chapter 5, you see that the Israelites are in a, in a great problem. So if you look in, in chapter 5 and verse, uh, verse 8, I think it is. Yeah, verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8 says, God chose new leaders when war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. They don't have swords, they don't have spears, they have no weapons, and they're against 900 iron-clad chariots. So I don't think it's too surprising that Barak is a bit fearful here. Humanly speaking, it looks hopeless. But nevertheless, Barak should have taken God at his word, shouldn't he? Barak says, uh, God says to Barak, I'm going to hand the army over to you. Barak, you should have listened. But he wants Deborah with him. He says, Deborah, if you go, I'll go. What's going on there? Is he saying, I want, I want you to come and hold my hand? Is he a bit weak? It's interesting, different people take it different ways. Some say, well, maybe he's being wise here. He wants Deborah there, who is the prophetess. He wants the word of the Lord with him. And yet, I think, and don't you have a look, I think verse 9, there's a rebuke there, isn't there? Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you are taking, the honour will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. I think he is being rebuked there, isn't he? Uh, and therefore, uh, he should have taken God at his word. But I want you to be encouraged by this, because Barak is not then written off. It's not that God says, well, forget about you, Barak. If you can't trust me, I'm not going to use you. He does use Barak. Barak does go, and Deborah does go with him, and God does use Barak. 
And in chapter 5, we won't look at it, but uh, Barak's name is mentioned in an honourable way. Yes, after Deborah, but he is still mentioned in an honourable way. And we also have to take into account the fact that in Hebrews, in the New Testament, there is a list of those who are honoured because of their faith in the Old Testament. And in that list is Barak. He is honoured as a man of faith. And I think that's a great encouragement. Here you've got, I mean, this is realistic, isn't it? That you've got someone here who is frightened, fearful, struggling to trust God's word, and yet in the New Testament is upheld as someone who, who has faith, who did trust God and did go. Now, like I say, I find that an enormous encouragement because I think I can see myself a bit embarrassed there. Aren't we? We're not so much the kind of people who are doing wonderful, sterling, strong acts of faith day by day. Aren't you and I more likely to be people who will just struggle to trust God's word and might be fearful? And when God tells us to go and tell others about Jesus and the opportunity presents itself and we're frightened and we think, well, am I going to say something? And then we bottle it. And we think afterwards, if only I'd said something. The moment's come, the moment's gone. And you think, now if I say something, I'll just look silly because, it, well, the moment's passed. And we can think, oh, I blew it. Maybe God can't use me. Maybe I'm not that kind of person. God can use us, even if we've been uh, lacking, even if we've been weak. He can still use us. And as we go on through this year, we've got events coming up in, uh, at Easter, Passion for Life, more opportunities for us to talk to people about Jesus, invite people along to things. We've got a few things coming up this year. We may feel weak. We may feel reluctant. Wonderfully, the Lord can still use us. Keep going. He can use the reluctant. Second, he can use the faithful. And for this, we see... Deborah. Steve, if you move us on, thank you. He, for this we see Deborah. Clearly, she is faithful, isn't she? She's an interesting character. Uh, she, there are very few characters in the book of Judges who come across entirely positively. And Deborah is one of them. That she is a prophet, uh, one who brings the word of the Lord to his people. She's clearly recognised as such. People are coming to her in the par- under the palm of Deborah. It's great, isn't it, to have a palm named after you? Well, she's got one. Uh, and she brings the word of the Lord to Barak, the command to go. And the Lord uses her to rebuke Barak. And she goes with him to the battle. And in chapter 5, there is praise for her. Again, turn the page. If you just see chapter 5... Verse 7, villages in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose. Until I arose, a mother in Israel. And verse 12, wake up, wake up, Deborah. Wake up, wake up, break into song. Arise, Barak, take captive your captives, son of Abinoam. There is praise for her. She is faithful and the Lord uses her. Now, this isn't the place for a detailed discussion of the roles of men and women in the Bible and in the church. It just isn't the main purpose of this passage, but yet it is touched on in this passage. 
And so we ought just to touch on it briefly, but I'm very happy to talk about it more uh, some other time or, or to chat with you about it. See, the Bible contains many women who are used by God in incredible ways, wonderful ways. After all, as we saw earlier, the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women. Let me give you a quote from David Jackman, a uh, well-known Bible teacher um, uh, in his book on Judges. About this passage, he says this. In the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, women are first elevated to the dignity and respect which is their birthright. And in the apostolic teaching, the implications of equality are spelled out. In other words, he's saying, in the New Testament, it is very clear, and in the Old Testament, it is very clear, men and women are equal, equal in status. He goes on. However, equality of status is not the same thing as identity of role. The New Testament is clear that while the variety of gifts and abilities given to women are many and far-reaching, they are not without limit. And particularly the passage, if you want to look it up later, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. God has often chosen to raise up godly women as agents of change in the history of the church, especially through their perception, their prayers, and their pastoral service. But the significant factor about Deborah, under the influence of the Lord, and as his channel of revelation, is that she did not usurp the man's role. She did not lead the army. That was God's summons to Barak, through her, and she would not step beyond the task which God had given her to do. Well, like I said, I'm very happy to talk about that more later. Uh, I think the, the challenge from Deborah, though, is for women and men to be faithful to serve the Lord, submitting to his word and being bold in obedience to him. God uses the faithful. He uses Deborah. She agrees to go with Barak to the battle and off they go. So those maybe are the obvious ones. God uses the reluctant Barak, he uses the faithful Deborah, and there's encouragement for us in this. And then there seems to be what appears to be something completely irrelevant. I don't know if you spotted it. Verse 11. Barak and Deborah have gone off to the mountain. And then verse 11 just comes in as, as, as it feels like it comes out of the blue, doesn't it? You know when there's an exciting thing about to happen in a TV programme or on a quiz show. You know when it's going to happen, don't you? Because the ad break comes along and it feels, oh, we've got to go through. And it can feel like that. Verse 11 feels like this just comes out of nowhere. What's the, what's the point of this? Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his te tent by the great tree in Zionaim uh, near Kadesh. Back to the battle. And he just says, what's that doing there? It's a kind of change of address card, isn't it? About this guy Heber who moves house to be near a big tree. They, Why do I need to know that? And I want you to see that God uses the seemingly irrelevant. It isn't totally obvious at this point 
why God tells us this. But as you go on in the story, you find out this is very, very significant. Heber has moved to just where God wants him to be. Because it's his wife, Jael, who is then used later on to kill Sisera and to fulfil God's prophecy. Now consider, again, the control of the Lord here. It looks like these people, Heber the Kenite, these are not Israelites. Doesn't look like they worship the Lord. Yet God inspires them to move somehow. Why did they move? We don't know. Was there a family feud? I mean, they're moving further away from their family, aren't they? Uh, He he moves, uh, he leaves the other Kenites, uh, the descendants of Hobab, and moves to near this tree. Why? Was there a family falling out? Family dispute? Family feud? Don't know. Maybe. Whatever it was, however it happened, it seems God just uses this. They wouldn't have known it at the time, but God uses this really significantly. Now, just keep that in mind. That God uses things which just seem to be irrelevant. This person moving there. This person changing job. This change in family, change in life. Things which people don't necessarily come to God about. Don't necessarily, uh, they're not necessarily Christians, but God uses even the seemingly irrelevant. We've talked about this before. It is no accident you live where you do. And it's no accident your neighbours live next to you. There are a few different answers, aren't there, to the question, why did your neighbours move next to you? Maybe they saw you and thought, yeah, I've got to live near them. Maybe it was for family reasons. Maybe it was for job. Maybe it was a whole load of things. What does the Bible tell us? They're there because God put them there. We didn't, we've seen this in Acts chapter 17, haven't we? This, uh, this verse tells us, From one man God made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out the appointed times in his history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. Why does God, why has he decided your neighbours should live next to you? so that hopefully they will reach out to the Lord and seek him. They don't know that's the reason, but we do. He uses the seemingly irrelevant. And next, he uses the weather. I don't know if you spotted this in the passage. It would have been tricky to have spotted in chapter 4. Barak and his men, and Deborah, head to Mount Tabor. And Sisera and all his men, with their chariots fitted with iron, come to the river Kishon. And Deborah tells Barak to go. Verse 14, we've already seen it. Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So, Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. 
How did it happen? How did they win? How did this bunch of Israelites with, I don't know, spades and um, sieves and I don't know why they'd have brought a sieve, uh, but you know, with a whole load of things which are not proper weapons, how did they beat the army fully equipped with iron chariots? How did it happen? Chapter 5 tells us. We get a bit more in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 4. When you, the Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Eden, the Lord shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water. And verse 21. Then thundered the horses' hooves, galloping, galloping. Oh, sorry, verse 21. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, March on, my soul, be strong. So, the rains came down, the floods came up, and the iron chariots got stuck. Not told that in chapter 4, but chapter 5 tells us that that's how it happened. And there's something there, isn't it? How did the Lord rout Sisera's army? He used the weather. He used the rain. And the writer of chapter 5 Deborah and Barak are in no doubt it is the Lord who brought that rain. And if the iron chariots get stuck, bogged down in the mud, you can imagine them, wheels spinning, they're useless. And so Barak and his army could come and win the day. I wonder whether there are some here who would point even to the weather changing as something that the Lord has used significantly in their lives. It's happened for others as well. One example, we've used it before, is Charles Spurgeon, when he became a Christian. He has said of it, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a place of worship. He was on his way uh, to, uh, to church in Colchester, Uh, trudging up Hythe Hill when a blizzard stopped him he had to turn to the side and went into a small chapel small primitive Methodist chapel the Methodist minister couldn't make it to preach that Sunday probably snowed in and so someone else got up to preach he was a poor man shoemaker a tailor something like that Spurgeon says he went up into the pulpit to preach he was unprepared he had to stick to his text For the simple reason, Spurgeon says, that he had nothing else to say. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Uh, He didn't even pronounce the words rightly. But that didn't matter, he says. Well, God used that in Spurgeon's life. That was the moment God opened his eyes to his glory. And through that incident with Spurgeon coming to faith, God used Spurgeon many years for many to become Christians. And you could say, well, all of those people, oh, they're coming to faith to God sending a blizzard. I wonder if the Lord has used even the weather in your life. He uses the weather. And you may think of the news recently that there have been storms. Is the Lord in control of them? Yes, he is. But you might say, well, but people have died in those storms. Is he still in control? Oh, yes, he's still in control. But you might say, well, what were his purposes there? And I say, I don't know. 
I don't know. He has not revealed his purposes about that storm to us. He has not done any wrong in those lives being lost. He gives life, he takes it away. And actually the alternative would be worse, would it not? Uh, if we were to say God is not in control and there is just chaos and those lives were lost just through, well, random events. Surely it is far better to say the Lord God is in control. He is master of the storm. He is master uh, of the snowstorms. He uses it all. And lastly, so we've seen that he uses uh, the reluctant. He uses the faithful. He uses the seemingly irrelevant. He uses the weather. And he even uses those who are completely unaware. Sisera runs off on foot, comes to the tent of Heber the Kenites, they just moved there or moved there a while ago, we've seen that already, and comes to the tent of Heber the Kenite where his wife Jael is at home. And well, I won't go through the gory details, it is pretty grim, isn't it? Uh, what she does, welcoming him in, and she kills him with a tent peg. Here we see God's word fulfilled. You see, you might think earlier in the chapter, when God says to, uh, through Deborah to Barak that the, the honour won't be his because a woman will kill Sisera, you might well think, well, that's going to be Deborah. That's what you're expecting as you go through, but it isn't. It's Heba's wife, Jael. She runs him through with the tent peg. God fulfills his word through an unlikely person. And why does she do it? Why does she put that tent peg through his head? One of the commentaries says this. The narration offers no hint of any spiritual motivation on her part or any concern for Israel. She acts entirely on her own and for her own mysterious reasons. He goes on. Just because the author records her deeds does not mean he approves of them. It simply adds to the mystery of divine providence, demonstrating implicitly what the following verses explicitly affirm. God is able to incorporate the free activities of human beings into his plan for his own glory and for the salvation of his people. Here she is acting on her own desires, and yet the Lord achieves his purposes through her, though she has no idea that's what he's doing. The Lord doesn't force her. It's not like her hands were moving without her wanting and picking up the hammer and the peg without her knowing what she was doing. It is not that the Lord told her to do this. She does exactly what she wants, and so is responsible for her actions and can be held accountable for them. And yet, the control, the wonder of the Lord is that he can use that in his purposes. Do you see how much greater God is even than a chess grandmaster? He involves his own people, giving commands, graciously using those who are reluctant. He uses the irrelevant. He uses the weather. He even uses the free actions of those who don't know him. He moves his own pieces. He moves his enemies' pieces. He draws in other pieces. He determines his enemies' desires and actions without them even knowing it, and he even uses the rain. And of course... 
we see his control ultimately at the cross of the Lord Jesus. The central point of history. There the Lord was in control of the movements of Jesus, Jesus' followers, and Jesus' enemies, orchestrating it all, the times, the places, the people, their motives, their actions, while not being responsible for any of the evil, and yet when they committed the greatest evil that there has ever been, their greatest assault against the Lord God, killing his son, that was when the Lord God achieved his greatest victory, because that is when he set us free from sin. What a great God we have that he can use anything, everything, even his enemy's greatest act for his own victory. And now realise this is the same God, the loving heavenly Father of those who follow Jesus. In our limited way, we look at our lives and at the difficulties and stresses and at the seeming chaos of the world around us and sometimes we pray, Lord, will you take control? As if God is asleep or God were distracted. And it is true, the Bible gives us psalms which express despair at a feeling that God may be far off. But then we come to this passage and other passages and see the immense power of God, the immense control of God, a control beyond our understanding. And we see the cross which tells us there is nothing he wouldn't give for us. And we are reassured he never, ever lost control. And he's working such that wonderfully all the praise and all the glory will go to him. Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your control, your sovereignty. Thank you we see it in this chapter as you open our eyes to what was really going on. And we praise you that Barak and Deborah could see it and praised you. And Lord, we pray you would help us to lift our voices, our hearts to you in praise to be in awe of your power and your control. And Father, we dare to pray that in the day-to-day of this coming week, Father, would you show us, open our eyes more to see how you are in control and what you are doing in our lives. Amen.